Solitaire Rose Novelcast, Do the Job, Episode 8. So, did you miss me? I know. I know. Trust me. I know. Um, I talked about it on Crazy Comics and Stories. I should talk about it here. I uh, had a lot to deal with over the winter. But I have uh, rededicated myself to all the podcasts. And uh, Novelcast is one of them. Novelcast, starting this Friday, will be every two weeks. I already have the next episode uh, recorded. Um and then I have the next novel set. So, there will be no more gaps. No matter how long it takes to edit these, there will be no more gaps. So, let's just dive into this one. Um, what you need to know. Lance Green spent 15 years as a professional wrestler, but when a neck injury ended his career, he started a new life as a private investigator. He has been asked to come back into the world of professional wrestling to investigate the death of uh, one of his fellow wrestlers from a drug overdose that the spouse and some of his friends do not think was an actual overdose. When we last left off, Lance had leaned on a small-time crook for information who'd sent him to an apartment out west of the Twin Cities when he started putting pieces together and decided, rather than go into that trap, he was going to go visit the man who he thought might be behind the murder. When I got in my car, I headed in a different direction. Look, I'm not stupid, no matter what the stereotype is, and I knew that going to the apartment building would be like a rabbit heading into a lion cage at the zoo. I may have scared Clint, but not enough that he wouldn't give Hodge or Ivy a call and let them know that I was on my way. So instead of walking into the trap and hoping I could find my way out, I headed to Minatrista, where Hodge lived. I knew the way to his house, having been there a few times back when he wanted to bankroll the detective agency that Katie and I started. As I drove, I tried to remember as much as I could about the place. It was a big house on the lake, and while I wouldn't call it a mansion, it was bigger than almost any house I'd been in before. It was a large two-story building at the end of a driveway that was almost a mile long, so there wasn't a chance of making it up to the house in my car without being seen. I also remembered that the side of the house facing the lake was mostly glass, and it had seemed incredibly strange to me at the time since it was the dead of winter, and we could have looked out the back of his house and watched the snow fall on the frozen lake and feel just as warm as if we were sitting next to a roaring fire. As I got close to the turnoff, to the side road that would go past the driveway, I had a plan in mind, and I knew what I would be doing. I remembered where the driveway was and drove past it until I saw a small cornfield about a quarter of a mile further down the road. There was a dirt path that it had gravel laid on it at some point years ago that the owner of the field had used to get in and out with his equipment, and I pulled off onto it. I pulled in far enough that it was hard to see the car from the road, but not so far that I was actually in the field itself. 
The good thing for me was I'd taken enough time driving out here and talking on the phone that it was dark. I turned my lights off and grabbed the light jacket I'd worn when I'd left for work that morning from the back seat. I didn't know if I'd have to get the car moving quickly, and the last thing I wanted was to get bogged down in the mud of a cornfield. It hadn't been raining to the point where I'd be worried about it on the gravel, but it rained recently enough that the ground was soft. I turned the car off and got out. I got a few things from my trunk. I turned the car off and got out, locking it. I grabbed a few things from my trunk. A tiny flashlight, a lockpick set, almost as good as the one Ivy had when I caught him, and a butterfly knife, which was illegal in Minnesota and easy to conceal. I didn't know if I'd have to get the car moving quickly, and the last thing I wanted was to get bogged down in the mud of a cornfield. It hadn't been raining to the point where I'd be worried about it on the gravel, but it rained recently enough that the ground was soft. I walked back up the gravel path and checked. Being reasonably satisfied that the car was hard to see from the road, I cut across and went into the woods on the other side. I knew the general direction of Hodge's house, and the darkness made it hard to get a good look at the woods I walked through. There wasn't much natural light, and I was far enough out of the cities that I wasn't getting anything from the light pollution. My eyes adjusted to the dim light slowly, but since I wasn't in a hurry, it wasn't as much of a problem as I thought it would be. The ground was covered with leaves. The woods I was walking through weren't like those in the park where everything's carefully maintained. There was a mix of trees, some as big around as my arm, and some so big that they'd been growing for decades. After a short time, I was able to see the bright spotlights that Hodge had on his house. Funny how guys involved in crime tend to be worried that they're going to be the victim of criminals. I walked as close as I could to the house without getting on the path of those bright lights. They had a tinge of blue in them, which I always found odd, and it gave the whole area a weird, unworldly feeling. I looked over what I could see and crept to the edge of the woods. The woods actually ended quite a ways away from the house, and there was almost an instant demarcation where the woods stopped and the meticulously kept yard began. The yard was easily 100 yards from the house to the blacktop driveway. On the right of the driveway was the garage, and to the left was the house that looked even bigger from my vantage point. There was no cars where I could see them, but that didn't surprise me. Why have a three to five car garage if you weren't going to park your vehicles in them? If you had anything outside like lawn furniture or the like, it had been taken in, and there was nothing on the grass other than some light fog rolling in from the lake. I crouched down so I could take my time and watch the place for a while. My guess was that either Hodge was waiting for me at the apartment I'd been directed to, or was waiting here for word I'd been taken care of. Of course, for all I know, they just wanted information from me or just needed something from my files. However, I tend to have a fatalistic streak. If they wanted information, Hodge would have asked me, or asked to see the file. I had no reason before today to think that he was something I needed to worry about. Sure, there were rumors that he had been involved in slightly shady deals, but you don't get the kind of money to afford a house like this by always playing above board. There were also red flags around him buying the agency, but wanting to set it up as if I was just employing his human resources firm to process payroll, benefits, some other things that Katie understood. In both of my chosen careers, you need patience, and I had it. It was a bit cold, but I waited, watching the house, seeing if there was any movement. 
There were a few smaller windows facing the woods, but the light behind those were off the entire time I waited. I checked my watch. Seeing that it was after severed, I figured that if I was going to make my move, I should do so soon. I doubted Hodge would be very patient, since Clint had sent me into his trap a little over three hours ago. Still, I figured there would be something I could tell from my little stakeout. I took a deep breath and started moving toward the house. As soon as I got out of the woods, I stopped and waited. The lights didn't change in intensity, so I figured he must not have motion sensors on them. As I got a little further into the yard, I saw why, as the lights were mounted on poles that were roughly even with the telephone and electric posts that led up to the house. I stayed crouched, hoping that if I was small enough, I might not attract any attention. I knew that the term small when it came to me was a relative one. Nothing happened as I moved toward the house. Even though I moved rapidly, I was also highly aware of my surroundings, kept an eye out for any kind of movement. The only non-nature-based sound I could hear was my own footsteps. As I moved, I kept thinking that someone would pop out from behind something and stop me. Or just that a gunshot would ring out from nowhere and drop me. None of those things happened. Within minutes, my back was up against the house. I took a moment to survey the area, and the spot of the house that I'd picked was relatively shielded from the blue security lights. I was a few feet from a window. When I was sure that there was nothing moving that I needed to worry about, I moved toward it. Using the light, I checked the windows for signs of an alarm system. Some of the cruder ones had light electrical wiring on the glass itself, kind of like how a car's rear window now had defrosting wiring in it. I also checked to see that if there were any visible window alarm contacts I could see. It was stupid to assume that a man this rich and in a house this expensive wouldn't have some sort of alarm system, but from my vantage point, I couldn't see it. I waited a minute, running through the options in my head. I could try to get in through the window, which could set off an alarm. I could go out into the garage and wait for him to come in, which might mean waiting until the morning if he was watching the Monday night movie before going to bed. I could just knock on the door and play stupid, which had served me well in the past. I could case the house looking for another way in, which meant there were a lot more chances of being seen. I knew that tripping an alarm would be bad no matter what I wanted to do, and to be honest, all I wanted to do was talk to him right now. Problem was, I was pretty sure that talking to me wasn't high up on his list of things to do. Thinking over my options, I decided that the best course of action was to actually get into the garage and wait for him there. I was a pretty light sleeper, was dressed relatively warmly, felt that jumping him as he either entered the garage or got into his car was my best chance at catching him by surprise. I checked the area again visually. I would have to move along the wall of the house, then cross the drive, which actually looked as if it had become a small blacktop parking lot between the house and the garage. Then get into the garage and figure out what to do from there. I had my small flashlight so I could see if I got in, and lock picks in case the door was locked, which it certainly was. I moved slowly and quietly, and when I got to the edge of the house, I started to look around again. However, before I could, someone grabbed me from behind. They had one arm across my neck and the other grabbing my own arm and my head. I knew immediately it was a sleeper hold, and for all the play acting we do in the ring, when properly applied, it does knock a person out. I stood up fully and tried to struggle out of it, but whoever slapped it on was an expert. It was tight, and I was already feeling the world start to fade. I tried to kick backward, but the next thing I knew they were stepping on the back of my knee, driving that knee to the ground and putting me off balance. I struggled again, using a couple of tricks I'd done in the ring, trying to grab the wrist of whoever it was had the hold on, but I was too weak and woozy already, and I didn't have the strength to pry the man's locked hand off of his forearm. I tried twisting out of it, 
but whoever it was knew that trick as well, and rolled into my twisting, increasing the pressure. It was getting hard to breathe, and my vision was so blurry I wasn't able to see much of anything. As I sunk to the ground, all I could wonder was if I would wake up from the hold. Chapter 6 I woke up with a throbbing headache worse than any I'd had during my drinking days. I was unable to move my arms and legs, so my next thought was that somehow I'd injured my neck. I was finally as paralyzed as the doctor said I would be if I even got the smallest injury there. As the fog cleared, I was able to understand why I couldn't move. I'd been tied to a bed, spread eagle. The last time this happened to me, it was a prelude to a good experience. But as the memories of how I got here came back into focus, I was sure that this time was going to be different. The room was dark. There was a window, so I was able to tell that it was still night. I had no idea how long I'd been out. Usually when you're put out by a sleeper hold, you start to come back as soon as the hold is released. But if it's kept on longer, you can be out for anywhere from ten minutes to a few hours. The light in the room was dim, but I could tell that this was an improvised place to hold me. It probably was a guest room of some kind. I'd also guessed that I was still at Hodge's house, since it would be risky to try to take me any sort of distance if I was able to wake up. And again, if they had a gun on me when I woke up, I'd probably do whatever they wanted. I struggled against the bonds, but whoever had tied them had known what they were doing. They didn't tie me to the bedpost either, since I was tall enough that I could reach the headboard and my feet were against the foot of the bed. The ropes were of high quality and I was able to figure it out that they'd tie me to the feet of the bed next to the floor. I might be able to break free, but it would take a lot of time, pressure, and leverage, which I don't think I would have had. It was all moot within a couple of minutes as the door opened and someone peeked in. The light in the hallway was so bright I wasn't able to make out anything but a male head with a crew cut. The door shut immediately, and I was impressed of how little of the light of the hallway was visible around the door. Had to be Hodge's house, I thought to myself, because only the very rich can afford to have a house so well built. What can I say? When you're tied up and wondering if you'll survive the next half hour, strange thoughts go through your head. It wasn't more than a couple of minutes later that the door opened and the light came on. The light hurt my eyes at first, but after they adjusted, I could see that the male head with the crew cut was Eddie. Next to him was Hodge. Hodge was still an impressive figure, even when he was in a simple black polo shirt and a pair of black chinos. He was about as tall as Eddie, had a full head of salt and pepper hair. His body was neat, lean, naturally, and his face was a bit rounder than you'd think based on his body. He had incredibly light blue eyes, which stood out against the dark color of his hair, and he looked almost sad as he came into the room. Eddie, on the other hand, looked as angry as he had when I talked to him about Mikey. He was dressed the way he usually was, t-shirt and jeans. They both stood over me for a second. Hodge was the first to say anything. I should have put something in my contract with you that you weren't allowed to investigate me in any way. I didn't know I was investigating you until you had somebody break into my building. I thought he was just out for revenge, but you had to leave a trail of breadcrumbs for me to follow, I said. You're better than I thought, he said. I was sure you would think it was just some loser you'd cross paths with looking for revenge. I'm impressed. I waited, wondering if he was going to ask me any questions, or if he was just going to have Eddie beat the answers out of me. That's how it was done in the books and movies. I don't have experience in that sort of thing. I took pictures of cheating husbands, found lost children, and other things that seemed a lot safer than when I'd stumbled across almost blindly. Hodge looked me over, and if I didn't know better, he'd looked even more sad. He then said, I hope you don't think this is personal, Lance. I like you. I liked you when you were in the ring, and I like how you run your business. 
it's a solid little agency. You do good work, and you make me decent money. It's a shame you took the case. He walked to the door, and Eddie followed with him. He took one last look at me, and then they both stepped outside. I wish I could say I overheard what they were talking about, but their voices were low and the door was shut, so all I knew was that they were talking. I could hear someone walking away as the door opened, and Eddie came back in the room. He still looked mad, and he came over to the side of the bed. I struggled a bit, wondering just how tightly they'd tied the ropes. He slapped me across the face hard and said, You should have just told Nancy that Mikey's overdose was exactly what it looks like. Now you're going to do the same thing. I glared at him since I couldn't do much else. Both of you were idiots. He had a ready pipeline to move drugs all over the country, and he said he wouldn't do it. You were too stupid to know when to quit. And now I'm into Hodge for a couple of hundred thousand, so I have to be the one to do the dirty work. You don't have to, Eddie, I said. Shut up, he shouted. You don't understand. Your business makes money, and you and your wife get to play good citizen while I lose money every goddamn year. I can't even turn a profit when I deal to Dan and his boys. The debt just keeps growing, and I'm too old to start over. I'm doing this to get out from under, and then I'm all done. That job with Brad would have got me free and clear in a couple of years. Add to that a year of using Brad's road crew to move heroin? Months? I would have been free in months. Instead, I'm in deeper than ever. And Mikey said he was going to turn me in. He trailed off. I'd never seen Eddie like this. I knew he was in trouble, but I had no idea how much trouble he was in. That deal that Hodge must have given him to keep his farm running must have been far worse than the one he gave me for my detective agency. And getting rid of me was part of the collection process. He looked as if he was about to cry, but his face was also twisted with rage. You're going to have to go out the same way Mikey did, he said. It's the only way to make sure the cops don't look into it. There won't be a kindly old family friend to hire a private dick to look into the death. I'd say I'm sorry, but you brought this on yourself. You were told to drop it. Before I could say anything, he slapped a sleeper hold on me. Second time he'd done it in a single day, and I was out like a light. I woke up, still tied up, but this time I was in a moving car. It didn't take long for me to figure out that I was in the back seat of my own car. I must not have hidden it very well. Either that or I had been watched for a lot longer than I thought I had been. Meeting all my sneakiness was a waste of time, or incredibly entertaining for whoever was assigned to watch me. I was stuffed in the back seat, but this time I was tied differently. My hands were bound together and tied to my feet, which were also tied together. I glanced up and could see the outline of Eddie's head and dim glow of the dashboard lights. I had no idea where we were going, and there was no moon for me to even get a good idea of what time of night it was. The radio was on, turned to a music channel playing album rock from the 70s. I knew that wouldn't give me a lot of help either, since those stations rarely gave the time, and the signal for that particular station was so strong we could be anywhere within a hundred mile radius of the Twin Cities. I quietly pulled against my bonds and this time there was a little bit of slack in the plastic rope. Because it was plastic, it hurt a lot more than twine or hemp, but I was able to move my hand down to my boot. I wasn't a religious man, but I said a silent prayer to whoever would listen that they hadn't been this thorough when they searched me. Sure, they'd been able to find my car keys, but that had been in my jacket pocket. My jacket had been on the floor of the guest room they'd held me in. I felt something metallic in my left boot shifted the tiny makeshift holster I'd shoved my butterfly knife into. It wasn't easy to get out, but I was able to slowly pull it out using two fingers. 
the road started getting a bit bumpy, so I figured he'd turned off a main road and was now on some place far more secluded. Not much time left. I slid the knife out of my boot and flipped it open, which I'd learned how to do one-handed. However, because my hands were tied, the knife fell on the car floor. Since my feet were bound to my hands, the only way for me to get at it would be get on the floorboard of the car, and if I did that, Eddie would know I was awake. The bumps were now getting so bad that Eddie was having to slow down, and I decided to use him to my advantage. When he hit a large bump, I dipped, dropped my feet to the floor and struggled to grab the knife. More than a few times I had it on the tips of my fingers, but a bump or my own inability to get a good grasp on the knife caused me to have to start over. The car started to slow down again, and there was another turn, this time onto a road that seemed even worse, making me think that I'd come to a game of beat the clock. I was able to grab one of the two handle pieces of the knife, and I quickly fastened them together with the metal hook at the bottom of the handle half I'd grabbed. I flipped the knife around and was thankful that I'd kept the blade sharp as it cut through the plastic rope quickly and quietly. Once my hands were free, it was easy to free my feet, cutting through the loops that someone had wrapped them in. I pulled all the ropes off my wrists and ankles and hoped I was half as tough as I claimed to be in the ring and afterward. I sat up as quick as I could, and before Eddie could react, I had the blade of my knife to his throat. Pull over, I whispered. It would be a bad idea to pull any tricks, and slamming the brakes on means you get sliced open without me even trying. Almost as if to illustrate, we hit a small bump, and the knife edge bumped against his neck and cut into him. It was a slight cut, and he'd cut his own forehead deeper in the ring, but he cried out in pain and then said, All right, where do you want me to pull off? I looked at the road we were on, had no idea where we were. It was a gravel road, and there wasn't a light anywhere to be seen. The road itself looked as if someone had just poured gravel in a pasture and hoped that people would drive on it. I looked around quickly and said, Just pull off here. I doubt anyone will be going down this road for a while. He slowed down gradually and drove off the gravel onto the grass. I could feel the car sink a bit to the soft ground on the side of the road, but it wasn't so bad I would have to worry about getting stuck. I glanced onto the passenger side seat, saw one of those tiny baggies filled with white powder and a leather box that probably held the needle and other things needed to give me a fatal dose of heroin. When the car was parked, I reached into Eddie's jacket and found his gun in the right front pocket. I removed it and switched it out with my knife, which I quickly folded back up and slid into my boot holster. Let's get out of the car, I said, holding the gun on him. He quietly got out of the car, and when I was out, I motioned toward it and said, Hands on the hood. I've had enough of your surprises for one night, Eddie. He did so, and in searching him, I didn't find anything I needed to take away. I put a hand on his shoulder and turned him around. I held the gun on him for a minute, letting him wonder what I was going to do to him before I said, So you gave Mikey the overdose? Because he wouldn't run drugs for you? You hurt one of us? We never hurt one of our own, Eddie. You're the one who taught me that. Our job is to protect each other, in the ring and out of it. I was trying hard to keep my own righteous anger from taking over. I wanted to know what the hell was going through his mind. Now he came to the decision to kill a man who had been his brother on the road, in the ring, and finally in the business. Don't you have anything to say for yourself, I asked. No, he said. You wouldn't understand. I was in with Dan. I'd given him the money to keep going when he lost his contract with the Civic Center so he could put together a deal to get on cable. When that fell through, I lost everything. I was already into Hodge for the farm. Now I had to go to him again. He was happy to give me the money, but it had strings. 
your money had strings. You just weren't smart enough to figure them out. He never made me kill anyone, I said, the anger getting harder to control. So that makes you better than me? We're both whores, Lightning. I'm just smart enough to know it. I'll be honest. I wanted to shoot him right there. I wanted to shoot him, then beat him, then make him hurt for everything he'd ever done. I knew the power of the metal in my hand. I knew it could be used to kill, to cripple, or just to rip a person's body apart. I knew what I could do, and I knew what he was going to do to me. He was going to inject me with heroin, watch me die, then untie me and leave me wherever he was driving me to. It was probably some obscure building that Hodge owned through one of his shell corporations, or just some abandoned farmhouse or barn he knew of. Still, if he had a bit of the Eddie I'd been in the ring with, he'd make sure someone knew where the body was before it was too messed up. I wanted to do the same thing to him. It didn't just cross my mind, it settled there, and I justified it so that I could convince the police it was a life-and-death struggle, and I had to kill him in self-defense. With his crimes and my reputation with the police, it was a no-brainer. I'd been in a situation exactly like it, and I knew that they didn't ask a lot of questions if everything was wrapped up for them in a way that didn't have any outstanding issues. Wanting to do something and actually doing it are two vastly different things. I kept the gun on him as I opened the car door and grabbed a length of rope he'd used to tie me up. I found a piece long enough to bind his hands, and I turned him around, tying his hands behind his back. I wasn't gentle, but if it hurt him as I tied his hands, he didn't show it. I motioned for him to move toward the trunk. When I opened it up, I pulled out the things I kept there, all the while keeping my eyes and the gun on him. He didn't say anything, and neither did I. There wasn't anything left to say. Almost twenty years I'd known Eddie, and now I wanted him to be wiped from the face of the earth. I pulled out my toolbox, gym bag, and anything else I had in the trunk, and sat it on the ground. It took longer than I thought it would but I wanted to make sure that there was nothing he could use to get loose. One of the great things about cars in the 80s was that the manufacturers still hadn't figured out how to put in the latches so that people could open the trunk from the inside. There's a large metal brace between the trunk and the back seat, and if it had been a car just a few years older, putting him in the trunk was dangerous. I figured it would be the best way to get him where I needed to go. I motioned for him to get in, and after he did, I got a few other long pieces of rope. I tied his feet together and then tied the rope, holding his hands behind his back to the metal brace at the back of the trunk. Finally, I pulled out a sock from my gym bag and stuffed it in his mouth. I then took a small piece of rope and tied it around his head, making sure he couldn't spit the sock out. I don't think we have anything left to talk about, I said casually as I finished up the binding job. I was reasonably sure the job I'd done was good enough, and I'd once found someone in this position they said they hadn't been able to even struggle. It was one of those, if it weren't for you, I'd never gotten free things that came at the end of a particularly messy, missing person case. I moved all my things from the soft ground to the back seat of the car. As I did it, I could hear Eddie thumping in the trunk, straining against the knots. By the time I was done, he must have given up because I didn't hear anything. I wasn't cold yet, but that was only because I'd been so active. I knew that without my jacket, it was going to be a chilly night. I slid into the driver's seat and then started the car. I moved it slowly back onto the road, heading the opposite direction that we had gone, and drove off into the night. And there you go, part eight. Part nine in two weeks, I promise. Uh, with the new schedule, I'll let you know what's going on. Crazy Comics and Stories, The Mothership, the uh, one we've been doing for over eight years, every Monday. Every Monday, no matter what. 
Every other week will be Solitaire Rose Novelcast. From now until at least the end of the year, there will be a new episode every two weeks. Every other other week will be an episode of Bad Advice with Wolfie and Corey, a comedy podcast I do with my friend Dan Moore, who hosts, and his uh, friend, puppet, alter ego, Wolfie Be Bad, where we answer your questions and give you bad advice. Solitaire Rose Radio will come out at least once a month, and it may be interviews, it may be experimental, who knows what it's going to be. That's what I like about Solitaire Rose Radio, it just is whatever it is. And then also at least once a month will be Solitaire Rose Series in Review, where we do DVD commentary on comic series. So look forward to that. There are some weeks where you'll get three episodes, where you'll get three podcasts, but every week you're going to get at least two podcasts from now till the end of the year. All of these podcasts have sponsors, and here they are. That's right, here at the Solitaire Rose Radio Network, we have ads, and our first sponsor is me. That's right, your charming and delightful old Uncle Rap Bastard. I have my first book out with Dangerous Dan Moore. It's the first hundred strips of our online web strip, Worldwide News, the story of the lowest-rated cable news network. And you can get yourself a copy with commentary, with all sorts of extras, with uh, signatures and everything. Just email Dan over at lordshadowflame at gmail.com. Our top sponsor, who's been with us since day one, is DreamHost. DreamHost.com. You need yourself a website, and DreamHost.com is the number one web host in the whole known universe. Just head over to DreamHost.com, put in the code CRAZY, K-R-A-Y-Z, get $20 off your first year. How can you beat that? Our other sponsor is Graze, G-R-A-Z-E.com. Healthy snacks for a healthy lifestyle. Just head over to Gray's, put in the code C-O-R-Y-S-3-R-5-P. Your first and fifth box are free. You can get them weekly. You can get them bi-weekly. You can get them monthly. You just order a whole bunch of them. It's great stuff to keep you away from the vending machine at work. Now, if you would like to leave a comment for any of the podcasts that we do, we'd love those. Go ahead and email us at solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com or you can call 952-856-0519. Operators are standing by. Okay, it's just a place that will record your calls, but we'll play them on the air. We'll answer your questions. We love getting feedback. Tell us what you think. Ask a question. Suggest a topic. Be a guest. Send us your stuff. Network at gmail.com. If you would like to advertise on any of the Solitaire Rose radio shows, you can. Just email us at solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com. Subject advertising. Thanks. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for being patient with me as I dealt with uh, personal stuff and uh, podcast stuff and all the other stuff. So... I will see you in two weeks with another episode of Solitaire Rose Novelcast.